0: Friday, everyone. Welcome into the New Orleans Saints podcast presented by SeatGeek for Friday, November sixth. I'm Carolyn Gonzalez, and on today's show, John DeShager and I will talk a little Saints first bucks. Scott Rabelais on a sports columnist from The Advocate to give us a little insight on the Saints' newest acquisition of Quan Alexander. And also, Todd Graffinini will interview Al Stahl, Jr., trainer of Tom's D'Etat. This is Benson's horse, who will be racing in the Breeders' Cup on Saturday on NBC. JD, my friend, I apologize for the leaf blower in the background. Any listener of this podcast knows that I can't guess Uh, when they're going to do landscaping around my apartment, but it's whenever I hit record, they just love to come around. So
1: love that. You got to spend some of that big money on some soundproof windows or something, or, or, you know, there, there are some home remedies. Now I would refer you to my wife because she watches all the home improvement shows something to soundproof it. I wouldn't know, but I guarantee you she would.
0: Well, J.D., at the beginning of this call, we can just be very transparent. At the beginning of the call, when I told J.D. to come on at 930, I was sitting on the floor of my closet because I needed to record something. So maybe I'll just have to do all of the New Orleans Saints podcasts from the floor of my closet. I think that's uh, an easy resolution that HGTV would approve of.
1: I don't know if that's the visual we want to have for the podcast, that it is on the floor of the closet. I don't know if we (laughs) want to put that vision of of the entire process. (laughs) So, we're going to leave that alone. (laughs) Next time you're in there, just keep that to yourself because we don't want people to think that this podcast is at the bottom of the closet. No, it's not, folks. It's (laughs) It's
0: not not at the bottom (laughs) of the closet. I am just out of resources. I need to go back to the office. I think that's the resolution. We are all making it work from home. Uh, but clearly I need to soundproof my apartment. Uh, JD, on a uh, more important note, other than my podcasting troubles, um, Saints probably biggest game of the season so far as they get set for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers this Sunday, a little Sunday night football. What are some of the biggest things you think the Saints have learned from week one after that win over the Bucs?
1: Well, I hope that they figured out their communication issues in, in the secondary um, I thought they did a better job against Chicago, which wasn't an elite passing team, but I thought they did a better job of making sure that you didn't have those communication issues that allow receivers to run free. Um, they got beat on a couple of deep passes um, and not really deep, a 50 yarder and a 24 yard touchdown. But I thought they were challenging in those positions. Those receivers weren't just wide open um, where you were turning around looking at other people saying, you know, where's the defense? So those left me encouraged because it's the NFL. Sometimes you're just going to get beat. Uh, The other guys on the other team work really hard at what they do, and sometimes they'll get the best of you. So that was encouraging for me to see them clean that up. And I think offensively, uh, they've gotten a lot more efficient. Um, You know, Drew Brees in during the four-game winning streak has completed you know three out of every four passes, 75%. It's hard to do that just in practice against air. Uh, And he's doing that against NFL defensive competition. Um, So I think those two things have really kind of spiked up a little bit. The running game has been extremely encouraging during the winning streak. Uh, 132 yards a game, uh, Alvin Kamara and Latavius Murray pretty much handling all the heavy lifting there. So I think those three things really stand out for me. But the communication thing on the back end, because that's going to be critical as the season progresses. And it's certainly going to be critical on Sunday night.
0: We talked earlier in the week to Karen Loftus about AB and, you know, how the Bucs were going to use Antonio Brown. How do you see the Saints matching up with Antonio Brown, not to mention the other receivers that the Bucks have in their arsenal?
1: Yeah, Mike Evans. Um, we, we're not sure if Chris is going to play in this when he had f- uh, finger surgery, I think, for a broken finger. And, and he wasn't scheduled to even see if he could catch passes until today. But if he's active, uh, it gives you some matchup issues because, On the times where you want to play man to man, uh, we've seen Marshawn Lattimore do a really good job against Mike Evans. Mm -hmm. So you feel comfortable there. I don't want to say you feel overconfident, but you feel pretty comfortable there. But if you're going to go man to man against Antonio Brown, who's going to be the guy? Is it going to be Jack Rabbit Jenkins? He seems to have that kind of ability. Uh, Is it going to be uh, Patrick Robinson, who's a great slot cornerback? Is it going to be P.J. Williams? Um, Is it going to be, at times, C.J. Gardner-Johnson? So those are things that that gives you pause and say, okay, who's going to match up against this guy if the Saints are going to play a decent amount of man-to-man. And look, you know, at some point throughout the game, you got to play some man-to-man. You got to mix up your coverages. Uh, you got to be able to send extra defenders, ru- extra rushers for the quarterback if you're not applying uh, pressure. So in those situations, you probably have to, you know, back it up with, sometimes you back it up with zone. Sometimes you play man-to-man and guys just have to hold up and you hope that they'll hold up long enough for the rush to get to the quarterback. So, you know matching up with Antonio Brown gives a whole different element to this because when he when he was right when he was playing and he was right if you put him in the slot or out well, it didn't matter where you put him he was a tough tough cover and so now you hope if you're the Saints, <laughs> uh, that this year and a half out of football uh, it might not have affected his his actual uh, i guess his actual conditioning but he ain't in football shape and being in shape and being in football shape two different things and so now he's got to get back out there get into a groove uh, get a feel for it so you hope if you're the Saints that's going to take a few games for that to happen because if he if he hits the ground running like he was back in his days when he was Pittsburgh Pittsburgh, he's a tough cover.
0: Put the Jets on him J.D. Um, you talked a little bit about the Saints offense, you know, Drew Brees, Alvin Kamara, obviously performing well. We'll see what the status is of Michael Thomas uh, later in the week, maybe a game time decision. I don't know. We'll have the injury report on Friday and then obviously the inactives list on Sunday. But offensively, from what I remember of that week one game against the Bucks, following it, Sean Payton, Drew Brees both said they had some things to work on, some play calling. They didn't like all of the play calling they had. Drew Brees said he had some things to work on. Do you think that by now in week, what are we in eight nine? They've they've solved those issues, JD.
1: I think they're on the path to it. I think I think they've come pretty close to it. Um, you know, they talked about you know being a better running team. They've they've improved that. Um, I think a lot of what happened was, and, and not to down downplay. You know, well, I shouldn't say not to downplay because I've downplayed preseason games forever. <laughs> Missing on that process and missing on offseason program, I think took the Saints and maybe every team in the NFL a couple of weeks to kind of catch up because you know you kind of get in the feel for it, especially if you added some new guys. We saw with Emmanuel Sanders, where it took a few weeks for he and Drew Brees to sync up. Now he's been out a couple of weeks, uh, and now he's back. So hopefully they can, you know, fall right back into to where they were. But I, I think they found the solution to some of those things that they were looking for now there's always room for improvement obviously you're always fine-tuning and tweaking you'll never be 100 of what you want to be but i think the run game um they've gotten a lot better and, and it's tough to run against him look they only give you 70 yards rushing a game that's the least in the league uh, the saints got 82 on them in the season opener on 34 carries a lot of the times with them it's the attempts as much as it is the yards because you're keeping the defense honest and then you throw in a couple of swing passes, a couple of screen passes, and those are you know, extended handoffs pretty much if, if they're going to Kamara and, and Latavius Murray. So you can keep them honest with that run game. But I think the, the things the Saints wanted to see better uh, in the run game and the things that they wanted to see better, probably in pass protection, because I think that, you know, it has improved as the season has gone along. I think those things have risen up as the season has, has progressed.
0: Okay, you've talked about a lot. You've covered a lot of different ground. What the Saints have improved on, what they're going to need to do. But if there were two, three keys that you can really hone in on for the Saints that they need to focus in on in order to beat this Bucks team, what would they be?
1: Well, one, you got to get some pressure on Brady. Uh, you can't have him standing back there feeling comfortable. You got to get him uncomfortable. Move him around. Uh, hit him. Uh, get him on the ground if you can. They sacked him. Uh, yeah. I think. Uh, sacked him three times in the season opener, got a couple of picks off of him. You might not be able to, you might not be able to get a couple of picks off of him. You might not get three sacks off of him, but if you can rush him, speed up his clock, that's with any quarterback. Uh, It doesn't go as well as it would with him. So you got to pressure Brady. Um, When you don't pressure Brady well enough, you got to be able to hold up in coverage. Uh, You have to be able to hold up in coverage uh, because they've got some good receivers. And so, you know, sometimes you might have to get a coverage sack or coverage pressure, as opposed to being able to just generate it up front immediately. Uh, I think that the Saints are going to have to run the football, and again, you might not run it for 120 yards, but it's the attempts to make that Tampa defense honest, to make them respect the run. That's what you have to have because you can't have balance if they're if they've made you one dimensional. And I think I think the Saints might need to do something in special teams. I, I don't I don't know if that means a big return. I don't know if that means a blocked punt, but they played a good special teams game against uh, Chicago. Uh, Deontay Harris was really good in the return game and Will Lutz obviously makes um, four field goals, including the game winner in overtime. And it might be that situation in this one too. There might be a chance of some deteriorating weather in Tampa, maybe some rain. Um, But if it's just rain, the Saints don't mind that. Um, It's the wind that you know we've heard sean payton say a million times it's the wind that has the most effect unless it's just a driving blinding rain or something like that but if it's just raining that shouldn't affect the passing game that much so if michael thomas is back and if emmanuel sanders is back then that should give the saints some some advantages i think tampa's really good in the secondary too i forgot about that but if michael thomas is on the field and emmanuel sanders is on the field and jared cook is on the field and alvin kamara is on the field then the saints have to feel pretty good about they've got those guys out there. So I think those are some keys. They, they, the, but it all begins with getting to Brady, getting some pressure on Brady. You don't want to, I don't think you want to get into a shootout type of game on the road. So that means you got to be able to get after Brady and make him uncomfortable.
0: Okay, you heard it here first. Those are your keys of the game. Let's bring in our guest Scott Rabelais for some insight on Quan Alexander, who spent time at LSU in 2012 to 2014. He finished his time with at LSU with 167 tackles. Scott Rabelais covered him for the Advocate in Baton Rouge. Scott, what can you tell us about good old Quan?
2: Quan Alexander is a, a, you know, a quality player. I mean, uh, another one in a, a line of very good linebackers She's had in this past decade. You know, I'm thinking of, uh, uh, is he, is he Devin white? No, no, probably not. But I mean, you know, you, you have all those, uh, you have a lot of other very good guys who've been productive linebackers in the NFL, who I, I think he, he fits in with like Kevin mentor, uh, Dion Jones, Duke Riley, Kendall Beckwith guys who were, you know, NFL draft picks and have gone on to good careers, um, with, with the NFL. So I think, uh, and I want say that about Devin White, because I, I, I'm very high on Devin White. I think he'll be in the Hall of Fame one day. I think he's that, that, that good a player. But, but he's, a, he's a quality acquisition for the Saints, and, uh, and I think uh, it, it's uh, it certainly warmed the heart of a lot of LSU fans who have been disappointed that the Saints haven't drafted many LSU players in recent years. But they, got, but they, they, they acquired an LSU Tiger, and I think that that'll make everybody happy.
0: We all know Saints fans and LSU fans go hand in hand. Right. Um, Scott, if you could give us maybe the best traits that you remember from Quan Alexander in his time at LSU, and maybe some of the things that you've seen from his his time in the NFL and what he's developed in his traits.
2: Well, I think he's um, he's he's not a he's not a huge linebacker. He was from this era of LSU players that they recruited who were. Yeah, you know, small, somewhat smaller, faster linebacker. You know, 6'1", what, 230? Is that about what they're listing him? The Saints are listing him as, I would mm-hmm. think. Somewhere around there. So, uh, either, either smaller, faster. This is kind of what John Chavis wanted in, in linebackers when he was the defensive coordinator back then. Uh, you know, excellent uh, lateral movement. Yeah, he he was, uh, you know, had, had leadership qualities. You know, he was, a, he was a middle linebacker for LSU. And then he was a... Uh, uh, led them in tackles with 90 uh, his junior year which is his last year in, in 20, uh, 2014 when he made first team all SEC uh, so that's that's a that's a good in, in you know indication of his talent right there and, and I, I think uh, I, I think he's probably you know learned you know, in the NFL to be you know more uh, you know more more versatile more you know more adept at uh, you know you, know, you got to cover backs out of the backfield very well and that sort of thing and I think he'll he'll help the Saints who are obviously giving up some yards yeah you know, to the pass and and, and maybe but, you know more than they would like and I think he could be someone who, who could help help maybe you know tamp that down a little bit that that yards per catch that, that the Saints are allowing this year.
1: You know Raps we we saw him when he was with Tampa and and you know, honestly, thought he was going to be there for a good long period, and then he, you know, ends up in San Francisco. But you know, I guess one of the things is he's he's been a little nicked up uh, for several of his seasons and hadn't been able to play a full sixteen. And I don't even know in today's NFL if you can depend on almost anybody to play a full sixteen. But you know, if you know, it, was that something that you know was a concern about him that he might be a kid who would get nicked up? I know you said he was a little bit undersized uh, as a linebacker at LSU.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, I guess that's been a bit of a, a trait. You know, some guys just seem to be injury magnets and I'll say he was, he was always injured, but his very first season as a freshman coming to LSU uh, from the state of Alabama, uh, he, he broke into the starting lineup, played seven games, uh, had, had a, a fumble recovery in his very first game against North Texas. So you he, so he made an impression right away, uh, but uh, suffered a broken ankle mid season against Florida and was lost for, for the rest of the season. So, now, now the next two years you know before he turned pro uh, a year early uh, you know, came, came back uh, played you know, played all 13 games all she played in 2013 uh, played 12 games with 12 starts in, in 2014 so so he came back from that but yeah r- unfortunately right off the ankle he uh, right off the the bat he had that ankle injury that uh, did did sideline him for her half the year or he would have been even more productive I mean, because they counted on him immediately and and like I said he was able to break into that starting lineup and was just beginning to to blossom so I obviously you know uh, uh, the, the injury bug is a, is, a, is a bit of a concern with, with Quan but as you said John it's it's just hard to to in the NFL today not to, to expect that someone's going to have something over the course of a year I think I think by and large he
1: could be a dependable player for the Saints physically could this be I don't want to say the perfect situation for him but you know he won't have to the Mike linebacker here that'll be the Mario Davis and so that will allow him I guess maybe the freedom to, to play to his strengths could this be a, a, an ideal fit for him?
2: I, I think so yeah, yeah I, I think so if you got someone in that role that he doesn't have to take on I think that's great I, I think he, I think his size and ability his his, uh, his you know lateral and straight line movement is going to uh, play to his strengths of being you know, in more of an outside linebacker position. So, uh, yeah, I think I think that's definitely something that uh, will be will make it a good a good fit for him with the Saints.
1: You know, now was there a collective roar in Baton Rouge when he got signed by the Saints? Because I mean, oh, no, no, we teased about that early. But I mean, yeah, now, you know, there is that thing where Saints fans are always man. They just didn't get this guy from LSU. You know, the Saints fans don't like to take into account that Patrick Peterson probably won a few picks before the Saints were going to be picking and that kind of thing.
2: Well, and speaking of linebackers this year, right? Patrick Queen was there for the taking for the Saints. Yes, he was. Late, late yes, in the first round, and we see how good he as a linebacker he's been with the uh, with the Ravens. Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe the Saints atoned a little bit this case. I'm just like, <laughs> this, uh, First of all, I, I'm not one. I'm not a conspiracy theorist <laughs> at, at heart, and I, I no way think the Saints don't make moves that are just based on what, you know, what they think is best for the franchise when they pick at the time. But, but this is <clears throat> so a, a position of need. And obviously they, they felt it was worth making this trade, getting it in before, before the deadline. But yeah, to, to your, to your original question, the think LSU fans who, of course, you know, are yeah, you know, Tiger, uh, Tiger's on Saturday. I got a guy who follows me on Twitter, Tiger on Saturday, Saints on Sunday, Saint on Sunday. <laughs> and, you know, so it's, it's, of course, a lot of crossover in that, but uh, I, I think, I think those fans are, are, are glad to see that, and yeah, I think a roar went up uh, went up when when they signed uh, when they signed Quan, especially because there has been a lot for LSU fans to roar about this season. I, I think I think most of all they probably would like him back at LSU to help with the linebacker <laughs> core, which has been less than stellar in twenty twenty. But I, I think they're very happy for Quan mm-hmm. and, and for, for LSU to to be coming home. I I will say too, you know, it, you know, it always you know it always comes out of the recruiting battles in in Louisiana, and people lament. Uh, when Alabama comes in and, and picks off a player, Nick Saban, you know, comes in and gets a Louisiana player. This is a guy LSU went into Alabama for uh, 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 in Quan, yeah, Alabama offered him, Auburn offered him. Uh, people say maybe they didn't pursue him as hard as, as LSU did, but it was a get at, at the time. He was a four-star linebacker, top 100 player in the country. And so he's got that kind of pedigree that, that you, you want and you expect of a player who's going to play in the NFL. So I think, uh, I, I think in all those respects, he, he's a uh, he leaves you know, fond memories for LSU fans that they hope will will uh, you know, be added to in, in his years with the Saints.
1: Just so LSU fans know, um, during mock drafts, and I hate to be a mock person, I can't stand drafts, ramps, but I did pick him for the Saints so in the first round. So just just so they know that, I just want to put that out there in the atmosphere and let it float. Um, but <laughs> but the Saints are always um, big on on high character guys. You know what kind of a character. Player or person is Quan.
2: Well, I, I think he was. Uh, I think he was a leader. I don't. I don't remember any any difficulties, you know, with him. You know, I think he, he was always someone who, um, who who was one of the guys that you looked up to. On, on the list, like I said, I, I'm kind of. He, he's in that kind of that kind of uh, I say assembly line, for lack of a better word, but just a constant flow of, of linebackers. Yeah, you, know, mm-hmm. you know that they they had in those years uh, in in the in the, in the 2010s. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and, and, and kind of reminds me in the same vein of a Kevin mentor and a Deion Jones, guys who are just solid, you know, very solid talents, solid citizens, you know, you know guys you know, who, who, were, who were good teammates You never you never heard anything about. Of course, we don't get to get in the locker room covering a college team as much as you do in the NFL where you, when you're in there a couple of times a week and you actually be in there. You know, they bring the players to you for interviews, and, of course, now we're all doing Zoom interviews. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, I remember him as being someone who, who was, a, you know, a very uh, you know, solid person on the team who, who uh, people looked up to. And, and obviously they were, uh, they were probably a little disappointed when he left. You know, you know, he was a fourth-round draft pick to Tampa Bay in 2015. I think he's the kind of player right now in the current climate you would be trying to re-recruit you know, to stay for, for, his, for his senior year. Like I think they might start doing a little bit going forward after losing the, you know, the NFL record-tying number of draft picks uh, off of last year's team. But I, I, think, I think he's definitely kind of a guy they want to stick around, not somebody they want to say, hey, you know, we're kind of, we're, we're kind of glad you're going. I don't think that was the case at all.
1: You know, Rams, I, I like to ask everybody this because it's been different, I think, for everybody. But, you know, in the pandemic, which has, you know, kind of reshaped the way we do things, I know you were a guy who, you know, went to LSU's SEC games, rode home, uh, did Saints games. What's this been like for you? I mean, have you been kind of, I guess, feeling – I don't know, odd about, you know, how you cover things now or, you know, the, the lack of, of, of engagement with players or the lack of seeing fans and stands, the lack of seeing the capacity stadium or, or at least. You know, so how, how's, how's it been for you? Yeah, it's all been,
2: it's all been very strange, John, as I'm sure you, you've experienced cover, covering the Saints. You know, it, we're doing everything by Zoom, you know, Coach Ogeron press conferences, players during the week, players and, and Coach Ogeron after games. And you just don't get the same feel, you know. You know, for you know, we're kind of you're kind of at arm's length with the with the program, especially a college program. You know, you can attend a you know a few minutes of practice each day, and that wasn't even the case under Les Miles, but Ed brought that back, and we're not we're not even doing that. You know, so all understandably, you know, it, it's just it's just part of this brave new world. But going to a game at Tiger Stadium, and there's been two games. One was a day game against Mississippi State, and then a night game against South Carolina. And they got Alabama next next week uh, in a late afternoon game. Uh, it's just, it seems like a spring game. It doesn't seem like, you know, Saturday night in Death Valley, you know? So that's very different. I mean, you drive through the camp. I live near LSU's campus and usually, you know, there's a parade of cars, you know, all day long going to the game. You see people parking miles away, you know, along the along the, the lakes by LSU. And it's none of that. You just drive straight to the, the stadium, to uh, your mm-hmm. parking lot. You find, easily find a place to park. You walk to the stadium past a few people. uh we have to. We have to go through a. a, a, a I've not been able to go to a Saints game this year because the credentials are restricted. But uh, you you go you have a pregame protocol that you go through at the assembly center and get your temperature checked and get your credential and walk through there and, and you know it's like, so it's a much different routine. It, you know the spring is all over the place. You know the spring you know, we got a lot of spring sports at LSU that we cover that that do well. You know baseball and softball and I, I cover a lot of gymnastics because you know they draw you know, 12 13,000 people, uh, you know, a home meet, um, typically, uh, you know, basketball has been been very good in recent years, and I think they have a good team again this year, uh, but, but football is the the, the the part of the year, the fall, where you get into a routine, that's what you do on Monday, that's what you do on Tuesday, hey, I'm going to practice, I'm coming back, I'm going to interviews, and, and all that's disrupted, now, I, sometimes I'm almost catching myself like my halfway out the door, and it's like thinking, oh, I don't have to go to practice, I, you know, <laughs> I don't have to go get over there for- for interviews because we're just doing it differently, but it, yeah, it's uh, it's it's certainly no, nothing anybody wants, and uh, we we hope it can get back to normal by by next season. I think I think everyone's everyone's kind of accepted what this season has been like, but uh, you know we're hoping that hopefully by next fall, you know w- you know we can get back to some sense of uh, semblance of normal normalcy in our lives and and with our, our sports teams because I, I I miss you know going to the Superdome and, and you know being in there. You know, because it's open air. Unlike a lot of NFL press boxes, you're in the open air and and the noise just envelops you. And the same thing in Tiger Stadium. And, And it's just it's just not not the same. I'm glad they're playing football, but it's just not quite the same.
0: Yeah, I think it's eerie and, and kind of strange for everyone. I, I know we miss Saints fans. I'm sure you miss uh, the LSU Tiger fans, and we miss the camaraderie that all of us have among each other and just seeing being able to exactly. see everyone um, and you know, talk to players, have those relationships, develop those stories and things like that. But like you said, hopefully things uh, go back to a little bit of sense of normalcy next year. Scott, we appreciate your time, and thanks so much for providing some insight on Quan Alexander for us.
2: Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Ravs.
0: All right, that was your insight on Quan Alexander. Now, let's learn a little bit about Tom's D'Etat, Mrs. Benson's horse who will be racing in the Breeders' Cup on Saturday. Todd Graffinini sat down with Tom's D'Etat's trainer, Al Stahl Jr.
3: What an exciting time it is, Alan. First of all, thanks for joining us. Uh, I know it's been a hectic, hectic time for you with the, with the Classic just a couple days away, just a day away, actually. Uh, just thank you for your time.
4: Oh, no, I'm, I'm glad to be here. Uh, when when people are calling want to talk about things like this, you know you're you're in the right spot and uh, anything for the for the home the home t- the home team, so no problem at all. I love it.
3: No question. It is the 37th running of the Burritos Cup Classic. It's hard to believe. Six million dollar purse. You know this is the Super Bowl. This is the World Series. This is the Stanley Cup Finals. Whatever sports referendum you wanna put in there. This is the big one in the world of, of horse racing. It's so prestigious. And just talk about being in the race itself and how hard it is just to even get in it.
4: Yeah, it is. I mean, everybody you know wants to get here. So you're talking thousands and thousands of horses around the world and and uh, to, to make it to the super elite. Um, what it looks like back here right now is it's like an Olympics because we're all together and all these barns are together, it's like the Olympic Village, and this morning, the, the, the amount of horse flesh that uh, was on the racetrack on display, just training for a horse racing person, or just anybody, it's absolutely mind-boggling, it's just, uh, it, it's, uh, we're very fortunate to be here, and excited to be in, with a chance, in the, uh, in arguably the biggest race on the whole card, so, uh, um you know, we're just hoping everything goes well for the next 48 hours. And right now we're very excited how our horse is doing. So um, it's just, it's just, we're, we're, we're sky high right now.
3: Yeah. We're going to get in all the particulars in just a little bit. Again, we're long form right here. So I know a lot of people who are listening to this podcast might be getting into it for the first time. So we're going to make sure everybody really understands what, what we're into here, but you know, this is not your first Breeders' Cup Classic. Uh, 10 years ago, you were the trainer of blame who had maybe the biggest upset in the history of the race, uh, defeating the undefeated, then undefeated Zenyatta at Churchill Downs. Uh, take me back 10 years and and what was that experience like for you?
4: Well, it was, uh, it, it was, you know, after the race, it was crazy excited, uh, leading up to the race. We were just focused on our horse, um, we knew everybody knew about Zenyatta she'd won 19 races out of 19 starts I mean that's the, that doesn't happen in our business and and she'd come from California and I kind of maybe underestimated her her uh, her appeal uh but as soon as she hit the gate of Churchill Downs and the traffic jams and helicopters <laughs> I said oh we might need a bigger boat so but we were just focused in on uh on Blame, who was training really well and and we thought we had the right horse on the right day and and um uh, you know, you need a lot of luck, and we had a wonderful trip with a great ride by a Hall of Fame um, rider, God rest his soul, Gary Gomez, and uh, it'll take the same type of effort um, you know, for Tom to do it, um, but it, it was spectacular, and the Saints had just won the Super Bowl earlier that yep. year, and um, half the city of New Orleans seemed like they came up there, all, all the people that all everybody would know, the Mowbrays and the Sammy Toops of the world, and I mean off the, and it was who that, uh, Coach Joe Sherman, we had a time of our life, and um, it's it seems like it was just yesterday, but
3: um, it was great. And just following up on that, uh, before we get to Tom, uh, it, it's crazy because I watched the race again yesterday, just to kind of refresh myself. And look, Zenyatta had an unbelievable following, and, and you talked about it. And it, it, and you talked about all the New Orleanians that went up there to Churchill Downs, but everybody else was pulling for Zenyatta, including the announcers. Uh, it, 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 they were crushed when Blaine won the race and I was thinking to myself when I saw you on the track uh, after, about to go in the winner's circle, that you were almost like the Grinch. Uh, I mean, think about it. Just that was just a major, major upset.
4: Yeah, it was. A, well, I, we were uh, that that race was nominated for the ESPYS. Uh, for we, we lost to uh, the VCU. Remember uh, exactly? Well,
3: Absolutely. We, we,
4: were, I think we were second to them uh, for the ESPYS. But it was you know we were surrounded. That's the beauty of having your people there with you. We after the race we had our own little pocket and yep. we didn't we didn't know that everybody had their arms crossed and uh, heads <laughs> down and and we were we were just yucking it up and having the time of our lives you know not in a, not in over the top way we were just enjoying it with with our crew and I, I, at that point in time I didn't really notice that it was everything else was silent so uh, uh, it was it was really something to behold it was great great
3: we're talking with Al Stahl Jr. the trainer of Tom's Day Todd is going to run in the Breeders' Cup Classic on Saturday on NBC of course owned by GMB Racing Mrs Benson uh, and that leads me to my question let's talk about your horse uh how did the bensons become involved and how did you become involved originally with tom
4: well uh mr benson has always had race horses um i shouldn't say he didn't have them when he bought the saints but in, in, in the 1970s and 80s he had a you know he had a ranch in texas and he had a bunch of uh, local you know regional bred type horses but he was he was always participating at the fairgrounds i've actually had a, a win photo i might have sent it to greg bensel of mr bent of my father and mother giving mr benson a trophy with a louisiana bred race and and it was um it was a, a, I can can't remember when it was. He was a quite—he was a young man, I know that. And uh, so uh, Greg put together a little idea, and he—he he, he told us, me, Tom Amos and Dallas Stewart, three New Orleanians, that he was going to run this by Mister B. And and they came up with something, and they put up money, and we all had uh, a free reign to go buy uh, the best horse we could uh, with the budget. And they had a tremendous amount of luck. Uh, Right off the bat, Dallas had a nice horse. Tom had a really nice horse. They both ran the Kentucky Derby and Tom was in the same crop, but he had a few problems with a young horse and he's uh, picked up the slack uh, finishing it off. So um, it was a, it was a great concept that Greg had come up with and it was executed really well. And we've had a lot of fun with it. And, and, uh, and here we are today.
3: Yeah. It could be a great capper as well uh, on Saturday in the Breeders' Cup Classic. Now, about the horse, Tom Zeta, he is seven years old. So in in, in NFL terms, he's basically Drew Brees. He's, he's at the end of his career. Now, how unusual is it to have a seven-year-old running in a race like this?
4: Yeah, if he would win, he'd be the oldest horse to win the classic ever. So it's very unusual. But he's an unusual horse. And even though he's seven years old, I think he's, we've raced him so infrequently because of uh, nagging issues he's most probably not as, you know, not really beat up like, like a a horse who would run hard for seven years. Um, So, and he's in very good form and he, he, I've, I've looked, you know, I've watched him every day. And if I thought I'd seen something that would say, Hey, you know, he's not what he used to be. The plug would have been pulled. No, no, Mm -hmm. if, ands or buts about it, but he's still like he was all year, this year and earlier and late last year. So um, I don't see it as being a problem of him running his A race. I think, I think he's, he's sitting on it.
3: Al, have you ever had a horse in your barn this good for this long?
4: Um, well, honestly, I did have that horse, Star Guitar, for mm-hmm. Evelyn Benoit. Um, he was, a you know, a, more of a regional horse, Louisiana bred. He's the all-time leading money earner for Louisiana breds. Um, so they're rare but they have similar characteristics. You can see it uh, when you're dealing with them on a day-to-day basis. I imagine uh, Drew does things that other players might not have done with diet and exercise and fitness and uh, therapies and things like that. So um, uh, Tom is like that, and, uh, but you don't, get, you, don't get, you don't get him too often in this game, and uh, we're, we're thrilled to have him right now, and we're very, very happy, you know, that he's got a starting career uh, following this race. So that, that makes me as happy as anything.
3: Well, we've got Al Stahl Jr. here, the trainer of Tom's Data, running in the Breeders' Cup Classic. It is the Pelicans podcast presented by SeatGeek Breeders' Cup Edition. Now, Tom's raced three times this year. He has not uh, gone. He's won two. He came in third at the Whitney, of course, stumbled bad out of the gate and still came in third, but he hasn't raced since August. And historically, he's done very, very well when he's had a long layoff. So I I guess you got them exactly where you want them as far as the rest goes
4: right right well we 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 set out to have a a prep race uh in the spring everything got turned upside down you know like everybody else's life the horse world had a little uh, quite a bit of that Uh, the goal was to get a prep race stephen foster and whitney and then regroup from there so we hit all three of our marks very happy that Oakland Park raced, Churchill Downs raced, Saratoga raced. And then uh, then the, the, the schedule was a little bit muddy um, in the fall. Keeneland didn't quite put their schedule out and New York didn't. But my gut told me, and Greg's gut, and uh, when Winstar came on board, Elliot Walden, the president, his gut all told the same thing. Let's just regroup and fire our best shot uh, off, off the bench, which he's like I said, like you said, he's proven to, to have done very well over the years. So we all on the same page. Well, I backed off on him a little bit, gave him mm-hmm. a little breather, let the heat of the summer uh, turn to fall, and we picked him up. And we think he's made every workout like we want. He's done what we want him to do. And as of this morning, I don't know if you saw some of the feeds from TVG or what Greg might have tweeted, um, he had a tremendous day here, and he, he, he knows that something big is coming around the corner. So uh, he appears to be ready for it, and we're very excited.
3: I'm going to pivot a little bit before we talk about the track itself, but how is training now in in the world of the pandemic? How has it been for you uh, since March training horses?
4: Well, you know, it's been, it's been from a logistical thing. It's been a little bit of a headache, but we're, we're, we're fortunate way, way more than most to have a, a, a sport uh, slash business that actually has done better in the pandemic because a lot of other sports had to take a little hiatus, and a lot of people were focused in on horse racing, and the betting was crazy, and it still has been up. We're, we're actually in an up year, so uh, fortunate to have a, a, a platform to apply our trade, so to speak, and um, so horse racing has been better than most, but uh, I think they've done a good job, they being track administrators, uh, because the protocols we followed, and uh, backsides have been quiet, and uh, you know, I've had my temperature taken on, you know, like everybody else, <laughs> two or three times a day for the past uh, six months and masking and, you know, the whole deal. So uh, um, it's worked out under the circumstances very, very well for horse people.
3: The track itself, Keeneland in Lexington, again, very historic place. And Tom's had success there. He, he won the fan stakes last year. So he has a familiarity with the track. And, and I would think that's nothing but a positive.
4: Well, absolutely if you look at the field i think uh, I think there's only three horses that have run over this racetrack out uh, the whole field and he's got clearly the best uh, speed figure you know out of those uh, those horses and uh, I definitely think we have a, a home court advantage there's no there's no doubt in my mind and but he's a he's a, a real race horse who doesn't need to take an excuse around with him like a racetrack so um, he has one bad race in the mud down in Florida but he came back to New Orleans uh, after that race and had abscess in his foot. So it might have been a, a, you know, some co-factors into why he might not have run that well. Otherwise, he's run—he's basically run great every time we've ever run him. So uh, I don't see any reason why he would not run you know, his A race on Saturday.
3: Just a couple more minutes with Al Stahl Jr. Again, big thanks to him for joining us. It's such a busy time. Breeders' Cup Classic coming up on Saturday on NBC. Now, the race itself... Uh, Al, it, you know, you're not in this race unless you earned it. I mean, you've got the Derby winner Authentic, you got the Belmont Belmont winner Tis the Law, you've got Improbable, who've got you've got a little uh, rivalry going with here. Uh, it's a field of ten. You picked in the you you picked the fourth spot. Uh, is the spot good for you? But again, what an all star field you're going up against. Yeah,
4: yeah, no, no doubt about it. Uh- we did have some luck at the draw. I think the four is an excellent post position throughout for, for him. Um, let's just, we're gonna assume that that uh, debacle at Saratoga and Whitney is an aberration because right. he's a very good gate horse. He, he's a gentleman in the starting gate and when the, when the doors open, he's always flown out of there. So uh, we're just gonna assume that he goes back to his normal self and, and from there, it'll be a, you know, a, a luck type of trip. Whoever's gonna win the race has to get the right pace and the right position um so we're you know the, it's interesting that three Baffert horses are all drawn to the outside um horse racing can even though it's the luck of a draw it can just drama can just show up around every corner right and uh I think that's very interesting and improbable the bad gate horse is out there by Baffert's two other horses so <laughs> uh we're far enough away from him so hopefully if he does his uh his tricks um we won't be bothered like we were in Saratoga when we were so close to him
3: well also in a field of 10 if something you know kind of goes not the way you want it to there's enough time to maybe make up for it because say in a Kentucky Derby when there's 20 in the field and you get caught behind you're in deep deep trouble
4: yeah yeah I think so I mean a mile and a quarter is a a, you know it's going to be a a fairly hot pace but it won't be like a sprint pace so they'll have a chance to sort themselves out and I I think the best horse will win uh, the best trip and um, I just hope it's us, and you know we just, uh, you know we we have all the respect in the world. I think the new, the new uh, uh, triple crown schedule has fed these nice three rolls into the into the classic in very good form. Uh, you don't normally see that. You might get a nice, you know, uh, top notch three year like American Pharaoh and the rest of them are kind of tired from the triple crown. But the way everything was pushed back and spaced out, you're getting two very nice three-year-olds in good form and they're they're they have a little more of a freshness uh angle so uh i'm i'm worried about the three-year-olds uh, mm-hmm. amongst others
3: how, how do you see the race unfolding
4: i see uh 46 and change for half a mile uh hopefully contested with a few of those couple baffert horses and and the two to the inside of us uh, by my standards and Tisla Law wants to be up there he's an aggressive horse and i, I see tom being you know, get close to the fence and mid-pack and, um, you know, Joel Rosario, the absolute first ballot, future, you know, Hall of Famer. And it's up to him. It's yep. up to the horse and him. But uh, I see us being about mid-pack with a, uh, you know, fairly hot pace. Hopefully and now,
3: Al can't thank you enough. Again, one final question for you. and We're going to let you go. Obviously very, very busy for you here. Big question. Can I put Tom as a single on my pick six ticket?
4: We've come this far. You got to keep the faith. We've come this far. We're in, we're in, we're in this together. So, yes. I,
3: I love that answer. I absolutely love that answer. Al Stahl, Jr., I cannot thank you enough. We're going to be screaming all the way in New Orleans. You're probably going to hear us up in Lexington. Can't thank you enough for the time. Best of luck to you. We're all pulling for you.
0: Okay, thank you. I really enjoyed it. Okay, a lot of information coming your way on the Friday edition of the New Orleans Saints podcast. You got a little Saints vs. Bucks preview. You got a little Quan Alexander insight and finally learned a little bit more about Toms D'Etat who will be racing in the Breeders' Cup on Saturday. So be sure to tune in. Saints fans, before we let you go, in honor of Salute to Service Month, We're giving one lucky fan the chance to win swag from the 2020 collection, including a jersey, hoodie, and hat. We are going to retweet the promotion on our Saints Pod Twitter account. That's at saints pod twitter account or you can go to neworleansaints.com and go to backslash fans backslash contests, and you will see the enter for your chance to win the salute to service gear so be sure to go to neworleansaints.com or of course the easiest way is to check out the saints pod twitter account like i said we'll be retweeting the promotion there on twitter All right, fans, be sure to tune in to Dome at Home Live an hour before kickoff on Sunday night. We'll have everything you need to know heading into the Saints vs. Bucks game. That'll do it for the Friday edition of the New Orleans Saints podcast presented by SeatGeek. Thanks for tuning in, and hopefully we're talking on Monday about a Saints win.